Well, I'm Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Pennywise? Yes, meet Georgie. Georgie, meet Pennywise. <laughs> Imagine you're at a carnival. The smell of funnel cake and popcorn overwhelms you as the merry-go-round sings that creepy song beside you. It's any child's dream, until the green-haired, red-nosed, and clunky-shoed bozo inevitably blows a balloon animal in your face. The dreaded carnival clown. Nothing more than a middle-aged man hoping to make some kids laugh. But why do clowns give more than 42% of Americans the creeps? While it might be easiest to blame Pennywise the Demon Clown from Stephen King's It, the explanation is far more complicated. It involves a combination of evolution, media exposure, PTSD, and more. But for each of the 25 million Americans with a medical diagnosis of coulrophobia or extreme fear of clowns, the stories are completely different. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In the next 20 or so minutes, I'm going to walk you through the five subtypes of phobias, the three theories of how they can be acquired, and the absurdity that is treating all phobias by the same type of cognitive behavioral therapy. So let's start with the basics. The DSM-5 defines a phobia as an excessive and persistent fear that is disproportionate to the degree of danger in a situation, with specific criteria including unreasonable excessive fear, an immediate anxiety response, avoidance of the fear-inducing stimuli, and life limitation, all lasting longer than six months. Though this definition is certainly a mouthful, it's actually been trimmed down since the last edition of the DSM. This new definition notably does not require the afflicted person to acknowledge the irrationality of their fear, but it does further break down phobias into specific subtypes for ease of diagnosis. As I'll discuss later in the episode, despite there being five specific diagnoses within the umbrella category of phobias, there is only one primary treatment plan for patients in psychiatric medicine an idiocy that contradicts the very purpose of discriminating such subtypes in the DSM. So let's break down the all-encompassing label of phobia. For reference, the brain is broken down into four large lobes, each responsible for different necessary functions. Though I won't be diving into the specifics, I'll link a fantastic explanation of each in the description so that you can better understand their differences. In a neurotypical person, a little bundle of nuclei in the temporal lobe of the brain, called the amygdala, acts as the chief regulation of fear and threat-related processing. This little guy is where sensory information converges and an initial association between specific stimuli and an emotional response is created. Then, the frontal lobe decides what the appropriate reaction is. But in a phobic individual, the amygdala acts in double time, reacting harshly and quickly. Passing on an association to the frontal lobe that is over-exaggerated so that logic is completely outweighed by the emotional response. While this hyperactive amygdala exists in all cases of specific phobias, each subtype has unique neuroscientific implications as well. The five subtypes outlined by the DSM-5 are as follows. Animal, blood injection injury, environmental, situational, and other. So let's start with animal phobia. This includes those such as the fear of sharks, galeophobia, and the all-too-common fear of spiders, arachnophobia. Animal subtype phobias are also the most common phobias in children, including imaginary creatures such as the boogeyman, witches, ghosts, and more. In fact, if you're like me and were traumatized by the Chucky movies growing up, a murderous doll that comes to life also falls under this category. According to the 2015 publication, Phobias, the Psychology of Irrational Fear, the animal subtype is the first to emerge of the four, 
within the ages of six and nine, but has been known to appear by as early as the age of three. The specific fears associated with this subtype focus on avoidance of danger or feelings of disgust and revulsion, and each focus implicates a different part of the brain. Speaking to avoidance of danger, a person with the fear of dogs is more afraid of being scratched or bitten than of, say, Cujo himself. On the other hand, in terms of revulsion, a person with the fear of insects focuses their fear more on the internal disgust created by these animals. The former occurs in the very front of the brain, closer to the frontal lobe, which integrates the logical reaction to mitigate fear response, while the latter happens deep in the occipital temporal lobes, further away from the regulatory controls of the forebrain. Hi, I'm Chucky, wanna play? Blood injection injury is the next subtype, and its name tells you exactly what it includes. Surprisingly to some, the focus of most BII phobias is not the possibility of harm. Rather, most patients report the greatest concern being in their own feelings of disgust when prompted with blood, needles, or otherwise. This trend, like animal subtype, implicates the disgust center deep in the brain. Blood injection injury phobia is unique in that it is the most likely subtype to provoke a physical response in the patient. Up to 75% of people suffering from BII phobias experience a fainting response to the phobic stimuli, whether it be just a picture or a situation or even an event itself. In fact, while every other phobia subtype correlates with high heart rate and blood pressure, the unique basal vagal response of a patient with BII phobia results in an extremely low heart rate, which causes this fainting behavior. To elaborate, BII phobia is observed with an extreme activation of the thalamus the part of the brain involved in sensory perception and awareness. So as the thalamus activates in the initial phobic response, the patient becomes hyper-aware of the sensation of, say, a needle entering the body, leading to the extreme fainting reaction. BII fears are the most likely to result in avoidance behaviors, and these phobias dramatically affect a victim's choice of work and education. Despite having the most physical response, these individuals are the least likely to seek treatment. In this case of morbid irony, a person terrified of doctors is the least likely to go to one for their own treatment. What an excellent day for an exorcism. The third subtype of specific phobia that we'll be discussing is the environmental subtype. Specifically excluding wildlife that might be wrapped up under animal subtype, this umbrella term includes things like the fear of thunder, called astrophobia, and the fear of water, unsurprisingly called aquaphobia. The focus of this subtype always revolves around fear of danger, but specific dangers naturally vary by fear. Individuals with phobias of water actually fear drowning. Individuals with phobias of heights actually fear falling. Sadly, individuals with this subtype of phobia have been shown to have the lowest quality of life of all phobic patients. Despite avoidance behaviors, most natural environment-based fears are unavoidable, and as such, extremely detrimental to the lifestyle of the person. One explanation for the chronicity of natural environmental type phobias is an extreme cortisol dysregulation in the brain. Cortisol is the stress hormone responsible for creating the necessary bodily response to anxiety-provoking stimuli. So, a person experiencing fear of any kind has an elevated cortisol level. However, when a person feels that they have a lack of control regarding their fear stimuli, such as during a thunderstorm, normally high cortisol responses become even greater. Perception of control is one of the greatest influences on cortisol regulation, so environmentally phobic individuals naturally suffer the consequences of being powerless to their fear. Continually heightened cortisol levels have been known to damage the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and amygdala, 
all contributing to a lifelong environmental specific phobia. The fourth subtype of specific phobia is the situational subtype. This subtype is the most particular of the five and revolves around unique situations such as the fear of flying, called aerophobia, and amaxophobia, which isn't the fear of your friend Max, it's the fear of driving. If you're familiar with my personal favorite horror series, Final Destination, it is those niche nightmares like being stuck in a LASIK eye machine or being decapitated by an elevator that falls exactly under this category. Victims of situational subtype are the least likely to perform avoidance behavior. Rather, these individuals tend to turn to safety behaviors to cope, such as an aerophobic person drinking heavily before boarding a plane, or, say, a claustrophobic person blindfolding themselves before entering an elevator. As you can tell, the term safety behavior is incredibly misleading, as these coping mechanisms can often lead to alcoholism and other sorts of abuse. Responsible for regulating stress and other homeostatic hormones, the hyperactivity of the system in a phobic individual has detrimental effects. People of situational subtype phobia often exhibit an extreme physical stress reaction while doing such things as driving or public speaking, resulting in symptoms like extreme sweating, blotchy skin, high heart rate, and more. The final subtype of specific phobia is the least exciting and going to receive the least amount of airtime. This subtype is broadly classified as other and simply includes those that cannot be easily classified as one of the other four types of specific phobias. Some of the most niche phobias fall under this category, such as porphyrophobia, the fear of the color purple, heliophobia, the fear of the sun, and arithmophobia, the fear of numbers. There are no accidents, no coincidences, no mishaps, and no escapes. It seems that no one can really agree on one true reason for the acquisition of specific phobias. But there are three main theories ranging from evolutionary to learned to experienced traumas. And as you'll soon see, the origin of each individual phobia may not be one or the other source, but rather a combination of all three. To complicate matters even further, treatment can only be effective once a psychologist is able to specifically untangle the innate, taught, and caught origins. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The phobias with the most substantial proof of evolutionary origin are the natural environmental subtype. The fears of such things as heights and thunderstorms are not only some of the most prevalent among the population, but also some of the most inexplicable. Adult phobic individuals of this subtype report no recollection of a traumatic event or a learning incident that may have triggered their fears. And famed psychologist Martin Seligman has pointed to the preparedness theory of evolution this theory states that individuals are more likely to acquire certain fears that may have once had an ancestral impact on survival. So, our ancestors hundreds of years ago learned to fear heights after those who did not died from falling. This theory also applies to animal subtype, though not as exclusively. Individuals who learned to fear snakes were the same ones who did not suffer fatal bites, leading to an innate predisposition for such fears hundreds of years down the line. The evolutionary theory widely revolves around the broadly known learning areas of the brain, particularly in the frontal lobe. Genetic research suggests that such neurodevelopment can be passed on through reproduction, perhaps explaining how survival training was passed from generation to generation, ultimately culminating as the modern-day phobia. BII and animal subtype phobias are also supported by evolutionary theory, 
And interestingly, the two implicate another part of the brain not associated with any other phobic subtype, the visual cortex. The visual cortex functions exactly as the name suggests. It receives and interprets information from the eye. These subtypes are not necessarily connected with an individual, say, hallucinating their phobic stimulus, or seeing something that isn't there, but results in the first-ditch instinct of fear when seeing so much as a similar shape. So an individual with a fear of snakes is far more likely to initially respond fearfully to a coiled rope, thinking it was a python, than a person without that same phobia. One slight criticism of the evolutionary acquisition theory is the fight-or-flight reaction. This refers to an adaptive instinct that dictates whether an individual takes a stimulus head-on, in a fight, or to flee. This reaction occurs in the sympathetic nervous system, and coupled with whatever specific hormone is released at the time, results in one of two reactions. However, in the phobic individual, neither of these responses typically occurs. Rather, phobic individuals experience what is called the freeze response, where they become rendered immobile in the presence of their fear stimuli. In short, critics of this theory argue that the evolutionary cause cannot be true if the evolutionary effect is not exhibited. An alternative acquisition theory is the social learning theory, made famous by psychologist Albert Bandura. In this theory, individuals can learn to fear a specific stimulus by observing others' fear of the stimulus. This acts as the alternative explanation for genetic relatedness of phobias. For example, blood injection injury subtype is specifically prone to relatedness in families, but most subsequent generations source the origin of their phobia to seeing their own mother's or father's adverse reactions to blood injection or injury. Social learning theory most uniquely implicates the mirror neurons of the brain. While these unique neurons will be discussed in depth in Samantha's later episode, in short, they are the most simple explanation for imitation behaviors. Social learning theory best explains some phenomena that have baffled researchers for years. Following the 1975 release of Jaws by Steven Spielberg, it was reported by National Geographic that 51% of Americans began experiencing symptoms of animal subtype galeophobia, the fear of sharks. In fact, as of 2015, 38% of Americans cite sharks as being the chief reason for their fear of swimming in the ocean. For many of these individuals had no prior experience or knowledge of sharks, and with the acclaimed horror movie acting as their only source, these patients essentially caught a specific phobia simply from viewing an on-screen nightmare. However, the social learning theory has a few downfalls of its own. While there are hundreds of observed case studies of people developing a specific phobia solely after observing another person enacting a fear response to the stimulus, there are just as many who have no adverse reaction at all. These differences may be the result of personality, genetics, or any number of other factors, but with the equal observation of non-phobic and phobic reactions in identical social learning scenarios, this theory becomes difficult to prove as the sole cause of a specific phobia. Finally, and perhaps most ex easily explained, is that a phobia can be conditioned. In this theory, an individual who suffered a traumatic side effect directly or indirectly due to a stimulus is inclined to develop a specific phobia of said stimulus. When speaking of direct conditioning, a person may develop a specific phobia of driving a car after experiencing a major car accident while at the wheel. Speaking indirectly, a person who experienced a separate electric shock every time they were presented with, say, chocolate cake would develop a phobic aversion to chocolate cake. 
While thus far it seems like I've only been providing movie recommendations, if you'd like to learn more about conditioning in a non-phobic sense, and haven't already been subjected to the teachings of Ivan Pavlov and his famous dogs, I'd highly suggest picking up a summary of his 1926 publication, Conditioned Reflexes, for a more detailed explanation of how only a few repeated learning instances can shape a person or animal for the rest of their lives. I'll link this in the description as well. Movies don't create psychos! Movies make psychos more creative! So what does all of this mean? Ranging from the visual cortex to the mirror neurons to the entire amygdala, it's clear that phobias cannot be distinctly traced back to one specific area of the brain. Not only do the different subtypes of phobia have different dysfunctioning cortices and lobes, but each theory of acquisition incriminates yet another part of the brain. And this should present a problem for psychiatrists, but it doesn't. And this isn't because they have developed some all-encompassing treatment, but rather that they don't really care to. At the moment, the vast majority of phobic individuals are treated through some combination of CBT and maybe beta-blocking medication, if they're lucky. But neither of these uniquely addresses the root of the problem, individuality. No two people with the same phobia acquired it in the same exact way, meaning that an effective treatment for one likely would not adequately treat the other. Like any other ailment, whether it be a broken bone, cancer, or even a virus, there is rarely a one-size-fits-all solution. Each part of the brain requires its own unique combination of therapy and medication, and since there is no convincing evidence pointing to one sole source, phobias cannot be treated simply with CBT. It's widely accepted that phobias are nearly incurable, but I believe that with a more individualized approach, tackling family origins, traumatic events, learned associations, and more, a trained psychologist could thoroughly address the problems of their phobic patient, helping them to lead a better life overall. And I don't intend to attack psychologists' lack of effort in tackling phobias. There have been several unique advancements ranging from one-session intensive exposure therapy for animal-phobic individuals to HD virtual reality experiences for situational subtype patients. But the statistics speak for themselves. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, more than 12.5% of people globally will suffer from a specific phobia at some point in their lifetime, making this the most common type of anxiety disorder. And in an increasingly complicated society, it isn't like the number of niche phobias is going to be decreasing. Without adequate treatment, phobic individuals are at the mercy of the world around them, and no one deserves to live in fear. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh?